0: Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Ephraim. and one of the elders here at Ecclesia, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you today. Um, many apologies for the technical difficulties. Um, we don't obviously plan for these things, and yet we trust that in the midst of it all, the Lord is able to work beyond our weakness and show his strength. And that's very much the theme of our new series, if you like, that we're going into. And it's... Um, very much the the theme of our new series that we're going into as it relates to a new series in the book of Mark where having a reintroduction to the Lord Jesus Christ. Servant, Savior, Son of God. Now, if somebody was to come to you and say in these times that they were commending to you somebody that they believe to be God, you would no doubt have a great deal of skepticism. You would no doubt be quite cynical. This person, God, in fact, you'd probably be quite dismissive in the first instance. That definitely would be my instinctive response. How can anyone be claiming to be God and be in their right mind? And we think that actually this is normal for us in our life and times, because it seems like such a distant reality that that could ever be the case. And yet, actually, in first century Israel, the, true the same could have also been said as true. The people of God in Israel had had 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence where God had not spoken to the people through the prophets. And so they had fallen into a state of apostasy, of godlessness. Their religious efforts were very much externalized and were not, in, in the main, as a, as a generalization, really an expression of the heart. They were going through rituals. You had the religious leaders. Um, Israel was, was a, a, apart from being under Roman rule, the the local rule of of the Jewish life was by that of the religious leaders. Um, They were also the quote-unquote politicians to an extent, where they influenced daily life um, on an ongoing basis. And so it's not as if there wasn't some kind of religious observance, but there was an emptiness to it. And some of us may feel that way today as we look at life, even looking at Christianity and feel like, okay, there's religious stuff going on, but in essence, where's where's the grit, where's the heart, where's the meat, where's the substance in it? And so it's in this situation that we are met as we look at the book of Mark. And we'll be looking at chapter one today, and it's worth highlighting that as we look at the book of Mark, there is a sense in which we're going to be moving through the text in keeping with the style of the text's writing, Mark wrote the book uh, as, as a, a docudrama. It was an all-action, fast-paced, rapid-moving narrative of the life of Christ. It wasn't there for lengthy explanations and lengthy observations. Mark's written it in a style where it's, it's a, a reportage, if you think about news cuttings. And somebody's piecing together the events of a a season from news cuttings and so on. Except that Mark received personal testimony as well as his own eyewitness testimony. And so when we come to the beginning of the book and we look at verse 1, when Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, he gets straight to the point. And I'm hoping that as we get into chapter one today, I give you a bit of an insight to the book as a whole, but then we unpack the chapter, you'll get that sense of feeling of getting straight to the point of who Jesus is. And so with that, let me pray, because there's a lot of prayer going on out here this morning with all the technical difficulties, and I'm in no less need of it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the fact that as we come together this morning, despite the distractions and complications, you remain Lord. You are God, sovereign, eternal, unchanging, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we approach at your word, I pray that you would settle our hearts and minds, and that you would ready us for what you would speak by your spirit to us. Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips, and I pray that in some way, to some extent, you would use me to reveal yourself as you have intended through your inspired word. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you in the care of your spirit and in the power of your word. We pray that you would move among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is the scene. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, Mark doesn't pull any punches. He gets straight to the point. He he identifies the central character of this narrative. This narrative that, as I mentioned, is written as a reportage of incidents, not necessarily a chronological unfolding. There is structure to Mark, as we'll see in a minute. But his focus is Jesus Christ and the claim that he is the son of God, the expected Messiah. In the 400 years that the people had been living um, absent of a word from God, we see that there was among those who believed a certain expectation, those who sought the Lord and were seeking the fulfillment of the great prophecies and promises of the prophets of ages gone by, and let's see how the Old Testament closes in the book of Malachi. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we see the prophet Malachi say this. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare, prepare the way before me. Note that. Before who? Before me. This is Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Then the offering of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And so this is a a prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah. Um, But specifically, not just the Messiah, but the messenger that will go before him to prepare the way for his coming. I send a messenger, my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Over in chapter 4 of Malachi, and verse 5, we see more about this messenger. Chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so again, we see this sense of uh, a forerunner who will come and will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, and even in the time of Christ, they didn't understand that the Messiah would come in the way that he did. Their expectation was that he was going to come, and he was going to free Israel from Roman tyranny and Um, relieve them of the oppression and bring them to a place of political freedom where they could then exercise their religious freedoms again without hindrance. They didn't think that this Messiah was going to come in meekness and humility. They thought he was going to come in majesty and might, riding on a white horse. And so even as Mark has written his gospel, there is a need to convince the people of his time that Jesus is the expected one. Now, Mark's primary focus at this point in time is with Gentiles, more so um, maybe than the other gospel writers. Fundamentally, because when we look at certain terms that Mark uses as a Jew, He uses very Greek terminology to explain certain Jewish things. And so we see that he's trying to make this accessible to those who are less familiar with Jewish culture, which is a help to us because I'm sure that there are very few of us who are familiar with Jewish culture. You might be thinking, now, who is this guy, Mark? Because we don't really see him named, if you've got any familiarity with the Gospels, we don't see him named among the twelve apostles. And so, how is it that Mark is this person who has given us this Gospel? What, what qualifies him to do that? In First Peter 5.13, we see Peter refer to Mark as his spiritual son. This is the same Mark, also known as John Mark, who walked with Paul, um, was said to have been the cousin of Barnabas. In fact, in Colossians 4, verse 10, and in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, there is reference to Mark being an assistant of Paul or assisting Paul in ministry. So Mark was present in and around the events that took place. In fact, it is suggested that in chapter 14 of his gospel, Verses 51 and 52 where they're they're at the garden and there's um, a, a note of someone running naked from the scene that that was actually Mark, tradition says. And so Mark isn't somebody who's just a sort of nondescript individual who appears later in history to, to, to note the events. But what we do understand that Mark was the one who captured peter's recollection you know we don't have a, a gospel of peter quote unquote and if you have then you shouldn't have <laughs> because there was none admitted amongst the canon of that which was regarded to be scripture but um the early church fathers there was a, a early church father called Papias in 140 ad who quotes peter as saying that mark wrote his account of the life of christ so, Mark was present and qualified giving reliable, um, an, a reliable account of the life of Jesus Christ. He sets out from the beginning. Who is this individual that I'm speaking about? Jesus the Christ. Now, this term Christ for us It again is a, um, let's call it a, a Westernization of the Jewish word, Messiah. And so again, if you consider that the expectation of the devout that the Messiah would come, Mark from the outset declares Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. In fact, even that he would use the term gospel. This term gospel, evangelion in the Greek, basically means good news. And this wasn't an exclusively religious term at that time. In fact, it was a term that was used when kings would go to battle, they would conquer on the battlefield, and then they would send a herald, a runner, who would run ahead of the um, returning army to send the good news of victory in battle. And so... When Mark says the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, he was saying this in the sense of this isn't just any good news that you're hearing. This isn't every and every good news that you're expecting. This is the good news of Jesus, a.k.a. Savior in Hebrew, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Mark is declaring this as a herald, as one representing a king. Again, an implicit reference to his view of Jesus Christ as King and Lord and God. And so, we see that there are three major structures, if you like. And people slice up Mark in slightly different ways, um, but this way I think is helpful for us as we go through. There are three major structures that, first of all, starts with a prologue. or or an introduction. And that's chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. And then once that unfolds, we see the beginning of the, the making known of the Messiah. And so from 116 to 826 is the Messiah made known. And then we have this short section in the middle, 827 to the end of chapter 10, where the Messiah is misunderstood. And in this period... Three times Jesus predicts his death. In fact, he even predicts his death and resurrection, and his very own disciples were confused. They didn't get it. And When I was doing some theological study, um, and we were looking at the Book of Mark, they, they used the phrase, the disciples the disciples. because despite the fact that the information and the evidence was right in front of them and they had been walking with Christ and seeing all of all of this they still did not get it but then in the final chapters 11 to 16 we see the messiah mission fulfilled so the messiah made known the messiah misunderstood and the messiah mission fulfilled And so that's the, the basic overview of Mark. He's not pulling any punches, he's getting straight to the point, and he is seeking to evidence his fundamental proposition. He states his claim, he sets out his stall from the beginning the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, as we look at chapter one, there are three main um, movements in the chapter identification, verification, and demonstration. I said at the beginning, if somebody were to try and make a claim that they were presenting to you someone, they were commending to you someone that they believe was God, would you believe them? You would want to see some kind of evidence. I mean, if this person is God, then surely they can do supernatural things, right? Perform miracles, at least that they're going to be of such character that is outstanding and clear that they are not like everyone else. That when they speak, they're going to speak the truth. Furthermore, they would even be able to predict happenings before they happen. And then you might consider, hold on, what kind of references does this person come with? Because we think like that, right? People make all kinds of claims in life. I mean, one of the fundamental statements on any kind of CV or resume, as it might be called by some. References available upon request, bottom line. You fill out an application form, who are your referees? You go on LinkedIn, and who are your contacts and your connects that are verifying your career history as you've presented it? And that's a a right and proper principle. And this is where Mark leads onto having identified who this person is, who he's declared him to be, and who we ought to consider when we are looking at his gospel, at his account, at his writings, he then goes on to break down six verifying factors and two attesting events in this process of verification The first one is the verification of Scripture. And so verses 2 and 3. Behold, sorry, verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so, this here is a quotation from Isaiah the prophet, as it states, Isaiah chapter 40, which is a monumental chapter in the life of a Jewish individual. Isaiah chapter 40. It's a chapter where God begins to unveil his his credentials, as it were. God flexes on humanity as he speaks through the words of Isaiah the prophet. And he does this for several chapters. And one of the things we see in the way in which Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, is quoted to um, in, 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 the, in the first century is the sense that when a quotation is given, it's, it's almost like finish the punchline type of experience. Because Jewish children are grown to, up until the age of 13, 13 to memorize... The Old Testament scriptures, and so when they hear a, a statement like this, their mind automatically begins to fill in the blanks. It will be as if I were to say, "For God so loved the world," and for those you're familiar, that you begin to fill in the blanks. I don't need to express the rest. I might say, "The Lord is my shepherd." And you begin to fill in the blanks. Man shall not live by. Come on. These are phrases that are familiar to us if we have any kind of exposure to the Bible and church life. You don't even have to be a Christian. Our father. We grew up in school saying that, right? Well, most of us did. I don't know about nowadays, the younger ones. but. And so, when you consider... The context, and I will encourage you, we don't have time now. I'll encourage you to go and look at Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm going to just draw to your attention two verses that relate to this. Because Mark does something masterful in this statement right here. He not only verifies that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, is of scriptural authentication, but he also verifies john the baptist as being his forerunner and prophet that has gone before him further reinforcing the truth of who jesus is isaiah 40 verses 9 and 10 and this would be ringing in the mind of the hearer as they see these verses being quoted by mark isaiah 40 verse 9 and 10 says go On up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Herald of what? Remember what we said about good news and the herald and running ahead? All right. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, what? Behold your God. Like, look, here's your God. This is what the herald is saying. Behold, the Lord God God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Now, again, this is a a, a statement. If I said, look, you know what? I'm going away on business, but my right hand man is going to take care of everything. You'd have an understanding that this individual is someone who's close to me. They're authorized by me and they're acting on my behalf. And so there's a sense when the the scripture says, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. There's a sense of that, but it's more than that. Because if I say my right hand man, you know, that's a different person. But when the scripture says, and his arm rules for him, it's recognized that there is a, a, a connection, a direct connection, that that is an expression of God himself. This is too much, Lord have mercy. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And so here we see that as Mark quotes this scripture, he is validating as a reference that Jesus is of scriptural validation. He's verified according to scripture. And so is his forerunner. And just in case you're confused about the relationship between the two, this is exactly what was prophesied. I already read the the prophecy of Malachi in chapter 3. And so we begin to see the picture that would have been in the mind of the Jew, but still very unclear to them because of their expectations that they imposed on the way they interpreted the text. We must be careful of that ourselves. We then see the next verification in verses 4 to 8. Um, Mark chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Spirit. And so we see John the Baptist coming in the, the spirit of the prophets. In fact, we are told in the book of Luke that he's come in the spirit of Elijah, who Malachi said must come first. Hmm. And he's a brother who's got nothing to lose. We get this picture of John the Baptist being a rugged guy who's not here for popularity and fame. He's not here for comfort. But he is here to declare the word of God. And his living conditions testify to that. He's not trying to set himself up with a following. He's not trying to get likes. He's not trying to get paid. He is here to represent God. They say there's nothing more dangerous than a man with nothing to lose. And so we see in this picture that we're presented that he is committed to And he is communicating clearly that which he believes to be the will of the Father. And he was baptizing people into a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, you have to understand, R.C. Sproul, the late great theologian, said that for John the Baptist to be baptizing Jews was scandalous because basically what he was saying is you're no better than gentiles because during that period between the the malachi and the first century the they the jews had developed a, a way of um, identifying outsiders who wanted to become a part of judaism so non-jews or proselytes as they were known who wanted to become a part of judaism had to go through baptism as a means of signifying their commitment to the law of Moses and their submission to God. And so for John the Baptist to be calling the Jews to repentance shows how apostatized and how far gone they were from being committed followers of the Lord. And yet he's calling the people to repentance. He's calling them to forgiveness. And yet he's saying, I'm not the one, you know. There's someone who's coming after me, quote unquote, I'm preparing the way for, who is greater than I am. And so again, he is another referee, declaring Jesus as verified as the Son of God. And he goes on to say that I baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, much has been made of this, and I'm not going to fully explain and break it down. But one of the things we have to understand about baptism, as I mentioned for the proselyte, it was a rite of passage by which somebody became um, recognized as part of the community of God, having submitted to God in receiving his ordained order. And so at that time, The ordained order of God or the rule of God was mediated through the law of Moses. And this is what everybody should have been observing and obeying. And so when John is calling people to repent, he's saying, come back to the law. Come back to the law of God. This is God's rule that we're supposed to be under. Submit yourself to the law of God and fulfill its practices. If you want to be regarded as part of God's community, God's people, then Be baptized as someone who is submitted to the ordained rule of God. Hold that in mind because we're going to elaborate on that in a minute. But fundamentally, when John talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, he's saying, Look, I have water. Whilst we're here, we can use water, but there's going to be a spiritual experience of baptism that is going to be an ongoing, that's the implication, it's going to be an ongoing and permanent one where you will be brought into the community of God and recognized as part of God's people by reason of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, we could take a side note here and spend six weeks unpacking baptisms in Scripture. Um, I'm not going to do that because we're trying to stick with the, 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 the style of the text that Mark has written. But needless to say, it's something for you to consider and, and look further into. And yet, what happens next? In Mark chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, we see Jesus engage in the first experience that attests to his um, identity, as the Messiah, the son of God. And so Jesus himself is baptized. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and the voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So Jesus, who did not need to repent, he did not need forgiveness of anything, but what he was demonstrating was that even I am submitted to the law of God. In fact, we see it in our other gospel accounts where John the Baptist says, no, 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 I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus says, let it be so that all righteousness be fulfilled. And so Jesus is demonstrating his submission to the Father, his place amongst the community of God, and his embrace of the ordained rule of God being the law by being baptized. It also served as an example to the people of his time because we see that the scribes and the Pharisees came to be baptized and John ran them away. Go away and bring forth fruit of repentance. They were doing it to show face. They weren't doing it for genuine reasons. But in this moment, we see a revelation of the triune nature of God. The three persons of God revealed at the same time in the same instance. And so Jesus is in the water. And as he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit, uh, verification again. What's that? That's got to be verification number four the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and alights on him or rests upon him and the Holy Spirit rests upon him and doesn't fly away again afterwards. It's like, nah, the anointed one is here. And we hear the voice from heaven. Verification, no, this is verification number four. The voice of the Father from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And all the people present heard the voice. It wasn't just a voice inside Jesus' head. And so we hear the voice. We see the appearance as of a dove of the Holy Spirit. And again, this helps us when we begin to try and work through the, the biblical principle of the triune nature of God or the Trinity. Um, Some have said that actually Jesus is the father and he is the spirit. And at different points in time, he takes on a different role. But it's just one person. And yet the mystery of the Trinity is seen revealed here that we have three persons and yet one divine being. That is God. And so Jesus is baptized, fulfilling all righteousness And he's then driven out into the wilderness. And this is the second experience attesting to his identity. Verses 12 and 13. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels we're ministering to him. And so, in this experience where his character is now tested, we see Jesus withstand the temptation of Satan, who, in and of himself, is another verification that Jesus is who he says he is. See, even God uses the devil to fulfill his purposes, such is the majesty of God's sovereignty. And yet also, the heavenly angels ministering to Jesus were another verification. Mark doesn't include all of this information just for passing. We see that his his account is very brief. It's, It's very calculated. It's very intentional. So this information isn't given for us to overlook. It's like Mark has laid out the CV of the Lord. And he said... This is who he is, and this is how you know. And so by the time we get to verses 14 and 15, Jesus has now um, declared his manifesto. What is his message? What is it that he preaches? And so in verses 14 and 15, we see, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so Jesus didn't go to the religious center in the south to Jerusalem. He started in his home territory in Galilee. Region in which he was born and grew up in. Apart from the time that he spent in Egypt. Having fled from Herod. And as he's there in Galilee, he proclaims the good news of God, that word again, gospel. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the good news of God, saying, Time is fulfilled. Okay, so there's been silence. God hasn't been saying nothing, but now it's on. Time's been fulfilled in terms of all that had been predicted concerning the Messiah, this is the implication. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is within your reach. It is present among you for you to engage with. But you must repent and believe in the gospel. And so, this may have some similarities to what we heard John the Baptist declaring in his baptism, where you need to Repent for the forgiveness of sins and be baptized. Jesus builds on that and adds clarification. He too uses this word repent, which basically means to have a a change of heart and mind that results in a change of action. And so you see a picture of someone going in one direction and we've been there. We're, We're walking out the door and we're like, hold on a second, where's my phone? And we repent of our exit. Because we go back to find what it is. Where's my keys? No, I'm not going to do that. Take you back. (laughs) But we've all been there. And that's just a simple example of what it means to repent. But concerning repentance, it is us coming to a recognition that basically we are wrong and God is right. That's as simple as it is. What do I need to change my mind about? I need to change my mind about the way I see life. I need to change my mind about the way I put myself first. The way I think about God. The way I think about others. I need to recognize that I'm wrong and God is right. And when I come to that place where I'm prepared to accept that and walk in the reality of that, that is fundamentally what repentance means. And yet, you can't repent and not believe. You can't have one without the other. It's two sides of the same coin. And without both sides, you don't have a genuine coin. Repent and believe in the good news. The good news? What good news? The good news that Mark stated right at the top as he identified Jesus as the Son of God. That good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Jesus declares his manifesto. And then having gone from identification to verification, we now get into the the realm of demonstration as Jesus starts his ministry. And we see in the remainder of the chapter, the called, the cleansed, and the preaching of the gospel. The called, the cleansed, and the preaching of the gospel. And I'm going to read the remainder of the chapter and then comment. And so we're looking from verse 16. Um, to the bottom. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. And, and sorry, let me start again. Mark 1, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the, with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And the leper came to him, verse 40, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. And offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. But was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. So Jesus in verses 16 to 20 calls his first disciples, two pairs of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, all of whom were fishermen. And it's interesting because we see there are so many ways in which in this section, Jesus confirms the expectation of someone who would be considered God. And yet also he contradicts the one who would be considered God and the expectation of such a person. You see, you might expect Jesus to go to Jerusalem or even in Galilee where they had um, rabbis and disciples that he might choose the best, brightest, um, most influential, academically um, excellent individuals to be his disciples. In fact, it was known in first century discipleship, because discipleship wasn't unique to the New Testament, it wasn't unique to Jesus, but in first century discipleship, where rabbis would have followers, who were their disciples, that people would often appeal or apply to become a student of certain rabbis. And once they had made that appeal or the application, they would wait for a response. And for the rabbi to say, Follow me. That was a a high accolade. It it was like the um, apprentice boss saying you're hired. What's he say? Alan Sugar. You know, he does it with that little bend in his finger. You're hired. And that sense of we've been trying to impress you. We've been trying to get your attention. We've been trying to um, warrant... Our place on your team. And yet Jesus went out and called some everyday ordinary guys. Some fishermen. In fact, the the, the men of Galilee were not known to be well spoken. Hence, when Peter was sitting by the fireside. We know that you're from Galilee by your voice, by by your accent. They had a certain way of pronunciation that revealed where they were from because it wasn't speaky-spoky. You know, they didn't speak with a telephone voice. Hello? Well, you know? If you know, you know. But they were hardworking and even, don't get it twisted, because they may not have been given to further and higher education within the rabbinic system, They were still known in Galilee as people who really um, had uh, an ear for the scripture and would have religious conversation as uh, a part of their life. So they were religiously observant um, to an extent where they would be happy and willing to talk and discuss religious matters. But these were everyday guys. This would be like Jesus walking on a building site and saying, Come and follow me. Walking into the um, admin office at work or the post room, not the boardroom, and saying, come and follow me. This isn't what you may have expected of one who is God. And yet, actually, this is the way of the Lord. And I think we should be encouraged. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, not many wise and not many noble are called. And even those that are called have come to that place where they recognize that their wisdom and their nobility is of no value before God. It's not about how many degrees. It's not about your career status, or where you live. God's not concerned about those things. And so he calls these brothers to follow him. And we then see that phrase in verse 21, immediately. And this phrase is repeated consistently throughout the book of Mark. This sense of immediacy. I'm I'm, I'm showing you this. Keep up. And so we then get a a catalog of those who Jesus cleansed. Jesus goes into the synagogue and he preaches and there a, a man with an unclean spirit cries out and Jesus delivers him of that spirit. We see at the end of the chapter Jesus meet with a leper. Now leprosy was a contagious disease and it was such that if you um, were exposed to the, the bacterial emissions of a leper, you yourself could cut, catch leprosy, which was a degenerative disease that would degenerate nerves and, and um, cause uh, almost like a, a, just a rotting of the flesh. This was something incurable. Lepers had to live in isolation. Now we know about this, right? when it comes to uncleanness and isolation in a different kind of way in this season because of this virus that's been plaguing the world. And so if you thought that lockdown was a new phenomena, you speak to a leper colony. They were not allowed to mix in society because of the contagious nature of their disease. And yet we see Jesus reach out to the leper and touch him and make him clean these are mighty miracles that attest to the truth of who jesus is even as jesus is with his disciples we see the care for his own when he goes to the house of simon where his mother-in-law was sick with fever and she's healed and her response is immediately to serve The Scots have a a phrase of old. Saved to serve. And it's always a healthy indication of someone who's genuinely had an encounter with the Lord. Whose life's been transformed. Who's experienced that, that touch of inner healing. That there's a servant heartedness. A willingness to serve. It's such a beauty to see in the people of God. And yet. Jesus didn't just do mighty works, but he preached. We see in verse 21, as he was there in the synagogue preaching and teaching, in verse 22, they acknowledged that he was teaching as one who had authority. See, like our academic system, you can um, be accused of plagiarism if you don't cite your sources. And the sources you cite give you credibility. And yet Jesus wasn't standing there as one who was citing his sources for his interpretation of the text that he would explain and comment on and preach to them. And yet his preaching was backed up by demonstration of power to the point where the the people were astounded. They said this is a new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits. So it wasn't just that he had authority in what he was saying, but how he demonstrated that authority. In chapter 2, we'll begin to see how people wanted to challenge his authority. But for now, Mark is establishing the authority of Christ in all that he said and all that he done. And the thing is this. In the book of Mark, we get this clear sense that the incidents or events that are described are there to um, provide an object lesson for the teachings that are given. And we understand that as we see Mark focus on Jesus' demonstrations of power, his healing of the untouchable leper is a demonstration of his ability to heal the, the rot in our own souls because of sin. Jesus Removing fever or cleansing unclean spirits, demonstrating his power over the cosmos and of all creation, that truly he is the son of God. And so even though we see Mark from the outset, and he will go on throughout the gospel to justify his statement that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, We see clear expressions of that. We see miracles. A man who speaks truth and who resists the temptation of the devil. Such is his character. One who stands in fulfillment of the holy scriptures. And yet at the same time, he's got time for the least reached. He's got A prioritization of those who are outcasts, such as his love. Do not lose sight of the fact that Jesus is revealing God to us. What's your concept of God? What's your impression of what he's like? Is he far and distant and some kind of ogre? Who, who only cares about do's and don'ts. We see here in his care for his disciples, the way he chose them, he cared for their needs. We see here in his care for the, those who were possessed. You know, today we may um, feel as though we don't see much of that. And maybe that's because, you know, we've diagnosed some of those experiences as being mental health issues. And that's a very careful consideration we have to have. That doesn't mean that we have to go around saying that every mental health issue is because of a demon or that there is no such thing as demon activity. It is by the discernment and wisdom of God that we're able to walk and take something as diagnosed until the Lord shows us otherwise. And yet, They're the people who are on the fringes, the ones who were avoided. But Jesus, as Mark presents him to us, in what is a very unconventional launch. (laughs) Calling the unlikely candidates. Demonstrating his care for the ordinary, the weak, and the outcasts. This is God, this is his heart, these are his priorities. And so as you consider yourself, who do you say Jesus is? As we go through the book of Mark and as we at pace examine the evidence concerning his life, I consider the words and present them to you of C.S. Lewis. He said that there is sufficient evidence to convince All who are willing to believe. See, Jesus isn't someone that you can be indecisive or sit on the fence about. Your eternity stands in the balance. Life as we know it is completely changed and transformed by the decision that you make as regards to to accept or reject Jesus Christ. And so as we conclude... It's a blessing and a pleasure that we get to revisit the account of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And may the Lord fill us with a fresh revelation of himself. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness and your goodness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that as we look to your word, we have a sense of you communicating with us somebody might do in an an email or in a blog that they would express their heart and their mind express themselves to us lord you have done this through your word and your spirit is present and lord we ask that even as we reflect on what we have heard today we ask that lord you would um, cause it to to make more sense as we meditate on it and that it would not only be good information but that we would actually be changed and transformed by it. And we ask this in your name, amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.